Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And we are actually going to cut the intro to this episode short <laughs> because this is part two of our two episode suite on coprophagy and that is eating poop. <laughs> yeah. So just like we did for part one, we want to give people a warning that this episode does talk about really disgusting things uh-huh. and uh, it also has off-color language. So if either of those things is something you want to avoid, please check out one of our other episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Although I will say my episode should be a little bit less gross than Bill's because he was talking about animals eating poop and I'll be talking about plants eating poop. So I think that there's just enough of a distance there that... that Animals eating poop isn't quite so gross. (laughs) Because you can imagine, you know, you can imagine it better because we're an animal. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. So in part one, I covered uh, the basics of this disgusting practice, coprophagy, and why it really isn't disgusting. It's actually a lot more common than we think. Mm -hmm. And then I really, as you just said, delved into the animals. Now, when we were researching, as usual, long-time listeners know Steve and I don't really talk to each other about what we're researching. And that is very much on purpose for any new listeners. We, yeah. we like to surprise each other and kind of have fun while we're out here. And sometimes Steve will kind of go off track and he'll say, hey, let's research this. And then when it comes time to record, he's like, well, I didn't research that. I researched something totally different. But I always try to make it so it's tangentially related <laughs> yes, to the you topic do. You in, do. in some way. Yeah. To give you credit. Yeah. Um, but it actually worked out this time because I had wanted to research coprophagia in plants Mm -hmm. and really didn't have time just the animals took too much there was so much out there but that's really what you focused on yeah so it worked out great this time yeah great so i guess i should just get into it get into the shit (laughs) right right (laughs) so as longtime listeners know and as bill knows i always like to go a little bit more into the background of some of these things um, than just covering the topic as it is I, i always like to give a like kind of a brief lesson first So that's kind of how I'm going to start this a little bit. So in order to cover poop-eating plants, we kind of need to venture back into the world of carnivorous plants. And these plants have flipped the script and evolved to eat animals. So this isn't a common phenomenon in the plant kingdom. Only about 850 species of plants have become carnivorous. And that's even fewer than the total number of living gymnosperms, which we talked about in a previous episode, and how few that really is when you compare it to the over 350,000 species of angiosperms or or flowering plants. And so you can really get an idea of how few carnivorous plants there really are. No, I I do have to jump in. Yeah. For the listeners that don't know, what are gymnosperms? Got it. So gymnosperms, these guys are... Non-flowering plants. Non-flowering plants. So they still produce seeds. Right. They just don't produce flowers. So evergreens. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, Cone-bearing plants is a big group. Sure. Conifers. Conifers. We yep, ginkgos that. would be right. a gymnosperm. Okay. Um, cycads. So, in plants, carnivory is a trait like arborescence, or the evolution of the tree form. It didn't only evolve once, but it independently evolved in many different plant lineages. So, carnivory has at least ten different evolutionary origins, and are currently split into five orders, twelve families, and nineteen genera. So, I think they're relatively easy to learn. Um, and Bill, I assume you haven't tried to learn all the groups of carnivorous plants. I have plants, not, right? no. Good, so I'm going to give you a pop quiz. <laughs> I know, pitcher plants and sundews. Well, oh, hold on, hold on to those answers. So I'm wondering how many carnivorous plant groups you know. 
and uh, I'll accept the genus or the common name for the group. And I just want to assure you that I would never give you a pop quiz unless I thought you'd do at least okay. <laughs> so please don't give me pop quizzes on your episodes in the future. <laughs> and I'll also keep uh, kind of a running score so you know how you're doing. Okay. So, so tell me the carnivorous plant groups that you know. Pitcher plants? Can you be more specific with your pitcher plants? Like uh, the names of like orders and things like that? No, just... Uh, for, for example, like Saracenia, we saw that. So yes. Saracenia purpurea. Uh -huh. So if you were talking about that group, I'll just give you the whole family. You're at a four out of a hundred right now. Okay, what about Nepenthes? Oh, Nepenthes, that's a good one. Your score just jumped to 23. All right. Out of a hundred. Yeah, okay. And, and the only reason I know that one is because it, it did come up in my research. Right, so the, Nepenthes episode. is another type of pitcher plant. Yeah. Okay, so do you know any other one? No. No? <laughs> I do not. What about sundews? I don't know their scientific name. I said I would accept common names. Oh, uh, okay. Spatulate-leaved sundew, round-leaved oh, no. sundew. Okay, so sundew was good enough. So you were at 23. <laughs> you just jumped to 52. All right. So they are a huge group, yeah. huge group of carnivorous plants. Uh, I can't think of any others. Nah, that's okay. <laughs> so I, I was just seeing how much you knew. Th that really wasn't Not bad for lot. something that you haven't done. But I, I will say, if you only had guessed sundew, so that's in the, the genus Drosera. Oh, that's right. Bladder warts, which is Utricularia, oh, and then the East, those. yeah, and then the East Asian pitcher plants, and uh, that's Nepenthes. You would have had a score of seventy-eight percent. Oh, so man. just in those three genera alone, you could have gotten up to seventy-eight. So, so disappointed in so myself. So you can see that there's there's some groups of carnivorous plants that are very common, and then many many other groups that are that are very species poor I, I guess you could say um but okay so now that i'm done quizzing bill you know and i only did that because i, I wanted test, test anxiety yeah yeah and i only did that because i wanted just to kind of throw a few names out there i didn't want to focus on anything too big right there but um but now that i'm done quizzing bill i, I want to give a quick example for how amazing the level of convergent evolution is within carnivorous plants so I had mentioned some carnivorous plants in the previous episode, specifically the six lineages of pitcher plants. So th these guys don't share a common ancestor that has pitfall traps or is even carnivorous in the first place. Each of these groups independently evolved carnivory and their pitcher or pitfall traps. Wow. And these are either formed by tubular leaves or in the case of the tank forming monocots, just a rosette of leaves that kind of comes together to form a pitcher. Um, and, and I kind of find that mind-blowing. And I'm going to mention a, a couple notable close relatives of each group of pitcher plants, as well as kind of like their broad geographical ranges, just in case the listeners live near any of them or are vacationing at some point <laughs> near any of them, just because they're definitely worth seeing. You can go visit them. Yeah. <laughs> so we have the Saraciniaceae, that is Saracenia and Darlingtonia. Those are in North America. And then you have Heliamphora in South America. And these guys are much more closely related to blueberries than wow. any other carnivorous plant. Um, and then you have Cephalotus, and this is just from a small portion of Southwest Australia. This pitcher plant is more closely related to star fruits, like you might find at the store, and, uh, and, a, and a plant around, uh, that's around us, a uh, wood sorrel, than any other pitcher plant. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then, uh, then, of course, you have Nepenthes. These are from Southeast Asia, but also just the Malay archipelago in general, Madagascar, the Seychelles, Sri Lanka, India, New Caledonia, <laughs> and actually just a tiny bit in the northern tip of Australia, for any Australian listeners we have. Um, we have which, some. Yeah, uh, which is in the same evolutionary clade as a bunch of other non-pitcher carnivorous plants. So you have the Venus flytrap, 
How did I forget that one? (laughs) I know, which is kind of strange because the Venus flytrap is a a terrestrial snap trap. And somehow this is closely related to Nepenthes, which isn't a snap trap, it's a pitcher plant, which is is mind-blowing. But then you also have an aquatic snap trap called the water wheel plant that it's also closely related to. And then, of course, you have the two flypaper groups. You have sundews and you have the Portuguese sundew or dewy pine that uh, are included in this sort of Nepenthes clade of, of carnivorous plants. Okay. And it's, it's, it's wild. Evolution I mean, is crazy. Uh, I know, I know. And, and I will say Nepenthes is the oldest clade of carnivorous plants. It was the first one to evolve. And uh, the, the idea behind these is that the adhesive traps, the sticky ones like sundews and, and this dewy pine, maybe that was kind of like the more ancestral form. And then over time, um, that was able to sort of evolve into more of a pitcher shape or a snap trap. But either way, the final group of pitcher plants are bromeliads. So you have catopsis in South Florida and South Brazil, and then brocinia, mostly in Southern Venezuela, but a little in the surrounding Brazil, Colombia, and Guyana, as well as a pipewort, uh, Papalanthus bromelioides from Brazil. Um, and these plants are much more closely related to grasses and even orchids and lilies than any other pitcher plant. Yeah. These plants all came up with this method for obtaining nutrients independently mm-hmm. and they're really far apart oh wow. yeah the three lineages that look most different from what we think of when we think of pitcher plants are definitely these bromeliad groups yeah. catopsis brocinia and papalanthus they all relatively recently evolved separately all within this poeles or grass order so i'm betting though in back a hundred years ago or more mm-hmm. taxonomically these guys were all grouped together uh, I would say that there was definitely shifting around, but I don't know if they were ever truly grouped together. Oh, really? I think taxonomists had sort of a, a bit of a clue about this for a long time. Okay. Um, but it wasn't until recently that we were able to really place them using more reliable genetic markers. Right. Yeah. Okay, so in this episode, we won't really be primarily focusing on normal carnivory since, you know, carnivory typically doesn't involve eating poop. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have to dive into the world of borderline carnivorous plants. So the term borderline carnivorous can also be interchangeable with paracarnivorous, protocarnivorous, and subcarnivorous. Though some authors do use these terms a little bit differently uh, in their literature. But, uh, but either way, we won't really be focusing on those differences because it's, it's not really very important for this. Sure. But essentially, they're plants that have some, but not all of the requirements of being a true carnivorous plant. So here are the five essential traits of the carnivorous syndrome. So number one, you have to be able to capture or trap prey in specialized, usually attractive traps. Number two is that you have to kill the captured prey. Number three is that you have to digest the prey, and this can actually occur by a variety of means. Um, It could be secretion of hydrolytic enzymes. This is sort of the norm. that, that So the plant's producing enzymes to break down the prey. The second option is reliance on trap commensals. So these would be digestive mutualists, and they would digest the prey and mineralize the organic nutrients. But we'll talk about this a little bit later. And the last option is prey autolysis, which still needs to be studied further. But this is where the prey just kind of breaks down on its own. Okay. Uh, this is this is weird because when, when I would teach people about predator-prey relationships, mm-hmm. I would often ask, what is the prey of deer? Mm-hmm. Oh, you. so uh, herbs, I guess. Right, Foliage. right. And for a lot of people, that seems weird. Mm-hmm. But 
prey is an organism that's eaten by another organism. Sure. So technically that is true. Mm-hmm. Herbs are the prey of deer. But with poop, it's not an organism. Nope. So it's not prey. <laughs> it's very weird. You're right. So, so I guess that would be a good reason why some people might not consider what I'm about to talk about true carnivorous, carnivorous plant. Yeah. Let's see how we think at the end. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. I got to think uh, about this. Yeah. So I gave someone you- out there's like they got it already and they're thinking, duh, guys, the answer's <laughs> obvious. But <laughs> so I, I just gave the first three. Um, uh, the fourth, uh, the fourth essential trait of the carnivorous syndrome is absorption of the metabolites or nutrients from the killed and digested prey. And number five is the use of those metabolites for plant growth and development. So only plants that possess all five of these traits should be considered carnivorous plants. Although it does get a little complicated with trait number three about digesting the captured prey. And the reason I say that is, well, first let me ask, are you familiar with the concept of holoparasitic and hemiparasitic plants. Yes, because we talked about this with Indian pipe. Yeah. Oh, sorry, ghost pipe. Ghost pipe, right. <laughs> so holoparasitic plants would be one that they're a obligate parasitic plant. Okay. And then a hemiparasitic plant is one that can take it or leave it, right? Yeah. So carnivorous plants are similar. The species that secrete their own digestive enzymes are called holocarnivorous plants. And this includes most of the carnivorous plants out there, so I won't name them. Um, but then you have those that do not secrete their own digestive enzymes, and these are called hemicarnivorous. So this group contains some of Saracenia's close relatives uh, that I mentioned earlier, Darlingtonia and Heliamphora, as well as Rorigula and all four of the monocot pitchers in the Poales. So that's uh, Brocinia, Catopsis, and Papalanthus. So this latter group has been labeled as paracarnivorous in some of the literature, despite virtually always being classified as just a carnivorous plant everywhere else. Right, so, so already the lines are a little bit blurred of what it really means to be a carnivorous plant. Is it okay to not digest your own prey, or, you know, or do you have to digest your own? I don't it's know, I'm sure, area. I'm sure some people would, would fight about this, but I'm not that interested in the fight, because right. sometimes I think it's good enough to fill that niche in multiple ways, sure. you know? Um, but, but either way, I want to specifically focus on Rorigula for a few minutes. Um, and I said it pretty quickly just now in the list of carnivorous genera that don't produce their own digestive enzymes, but I'm sure it didn't really mean anything to most of our listeners because they're not familiar with it, right? Rorigula meant nothing to you, No, right? that's a pitcher plant. It's not a pitcher plant. Okay. It's just one of these uh, carnivorous plants that does not produce its own digestive enzymes. Okay. Right. Um, so hopefully I can familiarize everyone. You're throwing everyone. a lot of information at me. I'm only, I know. <laughs> I'm only taking part of it in. So don't worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopefully I'll be able to help you guys familiarize yourself with Rorigula in the next few minutes. Okay. So regardless of whether or not they secrete digestive enzymes, all genera of carnivorous plants, except for Rorigula, obtain nutrients directly from their prey. I'll tell you what that means in a second, but Rorigula is actually pretty cool, and I'm assuming that you don't know what it looks like, so I'll give a, a quick description. So there's two species of Rorigula. Both are slender, evergreen shrubs, one to two meters tall, with narrow, pointed leaves crowded only at the tips of the branches. These leaves look kind of like sundew or butterwort leaves, superficially, but also because they're covered in these sticky little tentacles, just like sundews and and butterworts. Okay. So, Rorigula 
as well as butterworts in the genus Pinguicula, sundews in the genus Drosera, the dewy pine or Portuguese sundew in the genus Drosophyllum, the rainbow plant in the genus Bibulus, and finally Philcoxia all have what we call adhesive or flypaper traps consisting of sticky glandular leaves and stems. And these look a lot alike despite not being closely related at all. Um, it's similar to the pitcher plant example I gave above. So Rurigula is in the heath order, uh, the Ericales, and is closely related to Saracenia pitcher plants, meaning that's more closely related to like things like blueberries. Pinguicula, Bibilis, and Philcoxia are all in the mint order, but they're not closely related to each other. Um, and Drosera and Drosophyllum are both closely related to Nepenthes uh, pitcher plants that I mentioned above. So Rurigula is really, really good at capturing prey. Its common name is dew stick or flybush. Oh. Um, so I always kind of picture it covered in insects. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's really good at catching prey, and it's so good that it doesn't only catch small insects, but it can also catch flying insects with wingspans of up to two inches and even small birds. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> what does it do with them? Well, I'll tell you. Yeah. So Rurigula may produce the strongest glue of all insect-trapping plants, and that may be due to the fact that Rurigula produces triterpenoid resins instead of the mucilaginous polysaccharides that are produced by other carnivorous plants. Now, unlike what's produced by other carnivorous plants, resins are much more adhesive, yeah. they don't dry out, and they are not water-soluble. So if you stuck something like a sundew underwater and waved it around, the dew would just dissolve because it's water-soluble. But not Rurigula. It could capture insects underwater if it needed to. It's like pine resin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's just like pine resin. You can't wash it off. Yeah. yeah. But as I said earlier, Rurigula species don't secrete digestive enzymes. Instead, the captured prey are consumed by two species of hemipteran bugs. What? Yeah. And these bugs are in the genus Pameridia. Now, uh, these, these bugs, they live exclusively on Rurigula and defecate on its leaves. But these bugs are pretty remarkable for not getting stuck themselves. They don't avoid the sticky trichomes. Instead, they evolved ways to just deal with it. They hold their bodies really close to the plant and make frequent contact with the sticky surface. It's able to grasp the trichomes closer to the base of the plant where it can get more traction, and its heavy musculature allows it to sort of power through those sticky traps oh using quick movements, God. jumps, and short flights. Yeah. Uh, but lastly, and probably most importantly, these two uh, Pameridia bugs have an unusually thick epicuticular secretion, which is cohesively weak and grease-like. So Epi this is just kind of a... Epicuticular? It's yeah, just so on the outside? Outside of their body. Yeah. So they kind of have this like weak grease stuff on the outside of their uh, body. And this layer will slough off like when it makes contacts <laughs> with these... Uh, these resin droplets and that further prevents the bugs from being captured it's like uh greased up wrestlers moving through <laughs> glue <laughs> so, yeah. so wait what is this plant called rorigula spell it r-o-r-i-d-u-l-a and you're going to tell us how this plant gets nutrients though. oh yeah, yeah all right so does, wait wait does it come from the poop it does all right <laughs> yeah so these these bugs are eating all the captured you know prey and then they're pooping all over the plant. And then Rurigula <laughs> then absorbs the bug processed nutrients through specialized cuticular gaps. So the cuticle on a plant is just this like protective layer, kind of like this waxy protective layer. And there's little gaps in it where uh, th this poop can kind of seep into these gaps. <laughs> and then they're, they, they're able to contact this epidermal layer consisting of highly absorptive cells. So all this is to say, Rurigula eats 
bug poop. <laughs> so it finally came full circle, and it's wild. It's so crazy, though. Like, when, when someone tries to argue against evolution, saying, like, oh, how could it come up with these complex things? It's just like, look at this. <laughs> it's like, amazing. <laughs> how the hell did it end up at this relationship, right? But I'll tell you, I'm about to get into that. But I just want to mention first that Rigidal probably absorbs some nutrients from the decaying insects without the Pameridia bugs, but that's probably minimal. Right. Um, assassin bugs and spiders have also been found in Rigidal, but we only have so much time in the episode, and I don't think they're actually all that important uh, in, in, for this relationship. So I also wanted to mention here that resin-secreting glands are widespread among the Ericales. That's the order that the Rigidalaceae and the Saraciniaceae both belong to. So some glandular genera include rhododendron and erica, and both of these genera on their own contain more species than all carnivorous plants combined. So ah. I said that there's only about 850 carnivorous plants. Yeah. Both of these genera have more than 850 species alone, you know. But, uh, but of course, they're not carnivorous. So non-carnivorous species in this order will casually trap insects and many species are associated with capsid bugs that feed opportunistically on these trapped arthropods. So uh, I, I think it's relatively easy to imagine an evolutionary scenario where this relationship between the bugs and the plants could be continued and intensified over many years to where Rorigula is today. So what makes Rorigula and its digestive mutualists even more interesting is the fact that its sticky traps seem to be an evolutionary dead end for carnivory. And what I mean by that is that members of the Ericales do not have active digestive enzymes within their sticky resin droplets. The issue here is that hydrolytic enzymes cannot operate in hydrophobic resins. There's no water available. So the enzymes that they would be using to break stuff down... Are hydrolytic. Right. So and they... resin is hydrophobic. <laughs> right. No water, yeah. But Rorigula was able to overcome this hurdle through a digestive mutualism. No, I'm just going to eat the poop then. <laughs> right. So, and the Rorigula lineage established this uh, alternative carnivorous pathway for gaining nutrients from captured prey through eating poop. So prey... Life a... finds a way. <laughs> yeah, life finds a way. <laughs> Via poop sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so the prey is attracted to Rorigula's sticky, scented leaves, and they obtain a substantial fraction of their nutrient budget, about 70%, indirectly from their insect prey. Indirectly meaning because it becomes poop first. Right. Yeah. So um, not, the, the difference here is that non-carnivorous Ericales trap insects only haphazardly on their sticky leaves, buds, and sepals where they can be assumed by associated insects, but these plants show no uptake of nitrogen through these interactions. So that's the difference between Rorigula and other Ericales that trap Okay. Uh, insects in their resinous. They're getting they're getting the nitrogen from the poop. They're actually getting the nitrogen from the poop. Okay. Yep. Okay, so that's it for Rorigula. That's a probably a plant that many of you have never heard of before, and nope. I wanted to introduce you to this really cool adhesive, woody carnivorous plant. Not a lot of woody carnivorous oh, plants yeah. out there. Yeah. Wow. So it's a shrub. It's very strange, right. but it's such a cool one. So I said earlier that Rorigula was the only carnivorous plant genus that doesn't get nutrients from its prey directly. Now that's true, but there are other genera with standalone cases of getting nutrients from their prey indirectly. This includes the purple pitcher plant from a few episodes back. And this species is a little bit different than Rorigula, 
It doesn't really rely on any type of ancestral sticky glandular leaves common to the Ericales order. The Saraciniaceae evolved a fundamentally different trap type from Merigula. These pitfall traps evolved de novo from non-carnivorous foliar leaves. And I don't really want to focus on this too much since we had a long episode about Saracenia purpurea already. But just like Merigula, Saracenia purpurea gets mineral nutrients from prey indirectly through the excrement of its digestive mutualists. So if you remember, we talked about all the species that live inside of uh, the purple pitcher plant. They're called inquilines. A lot of them are pooping in the plant, and the plant is getting nutrients through their poop that kind of settles near Uh, the bottom where they have their digestive glands. So before I say anything, I just want to say, Saracenia purpurea also eats inquiline poop, (laughs) which is amazing. So we need to put a pin in that. Okay. But it doesn't eat poop nearly exclusively like Rorigula does. The purple pitcher plant also gains nutrients directly from its prey, but the prey are primarily broken down by a diverse microbial community as well as its invertebrate inquiline species. So it's important here to note that the purple pitcher plant also produces its own digestive enzymes like the other 10 Saracenia species in North America, but the extent to which those digestive enzymes play a role in the digestion of its captured prey, and Saracenia purpurea specifically still needs more research. So would you consider it a coprophagic plant? I think it has coprophagic traits. Yeah. I don't think... It's not one of the major groups of coprophagous plants. Okay. Um, Rorigula is the huge one, and then there's another one that I'm going to get into in just a moment. And I know this is kind of a silly or loaded question, but it Mm -hmm. probably couldn't survive just from the poop of the inquilines. Because the inquilines wouldn't be there if the other critters weren't there. (laughs) Right, right. So it, it, it is... It is tough because there's a lot going on inside purple pitcher plant pitchers. In fact, there's there's been many, many studies just looking at that nutrient cycle and that system that, uh, that's going on in there. So it's definitely complicated, but I wanted to make sure that we made a note that they do get nutrients from, from poop. poop. All <laughs> yeah. right. So next I wanted to get into a group of carnivorous plants that have lost their ancestral carnivorous habit in favor of eating mammal feces but before i get into that i think it's probably a good idea right here to take a break for our sponsor sure yeah so this episode is sponsored by gum leaf usa this company makes high quality super comfortable handmade tall rubber boots well i have something that i wanted to say about gum leaf boots sure some some advice i wanted to share with you steve oh, okay because i don't know if you want me to share this with the audience but i don't care steve recently got engaged Oh, boy. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Are you okay with me sharing that? Uh, That's fine. (laughs) So back off, back off, ladies (laughs) and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) He sounds pretty excited about it. (laughs) Well, I was going to to give you advice, Steve. If you're looking for um, a good wedding gift, because you know you're supposed to get something for your wife, right? What? (laughs) I got her the ring. (laughs) Isn't that good enough? Well, (laughs) take it from me, all right? (laughs) You might consider a pair of gum leaf boots. Oh wow! They're very romantic, and the uh, <laughs> the couple that uh, goes through the mud together stays together. <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a saying, I believe. I know there's like a knocking boots joke in there. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't gonna go there, but <laughs> but I would highly recommend the pair that I'm wearing right now, the Royal Zips. Yeah, they have lots of bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. Um, they are wonderful for 
any kind of outdoor activity that involves moisture and mud, they're gonna keep your feet toasty, warm, and dry. Yeah, and I have the Field Wellies, I believe they're called, right. and they're also super comfortable. They don't have that nice zipper down the side, but they're still pretty easy to get in and out yeah. of, and they're super, super comfortable. That's what my wife has. She loves them. Yeah. yeah. So, um, as we've said before, they're handcrafted for comfort and function, and I think they look pretty good too. Uh, so they have a very simple design, you know? They're 100% waterproof, durable, and made with 85% natural rubber, so you won't have to worry about them cracking. They have styles for men and women, and they're great for birding, botanizing, or any other outdoor activity you could think of. So if you're interested in high-quality tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and explore their products. It's also a great way to support us, and it'll help us uh, do cooler things with the podcast in the future. So there will be a link in the episode notes and on our website, and Bill... Gumleaf USA has arranged for patrons of the podcast to receive free shipping on any orders, so if you become a patron of the episode, you can find that code on our Patreon page. Yeah. All right, so back to it. All right. <laughs> All right, so let's explore our last taxonomic group of poop eaters. So a handful of... Plants. Carn- yeah, <laughs> poop-eating plants. <laughs> so a handful of species of carnivorous plants have lost their carnivorous habit, but only four have lost it in exchange for trapping feces. <laughs> so uh, our first official coprophagous group of carnivorous plants was the genus Rorigula. This group of plants never really lost its carnivorous habit. Their current digestive mutualism with hemipterans is the closest it's ever really come to true carnivory. And I'm okay with classifying it as an official carnivorous plant. I, I just think it's, it's super interesting, and it still gets the, the same job done. The second official coprophagous group of carnivorous plants are within the Nepenthes genus. This is a good one. Yeah, so these pitcher plants have largely exchanged their predator-prey carnivorous habit for more of a mutualistic latrine habit. <laughs> Toilet pitchers. <laughs> yeah. So the first three species are giant pitchered mountain Nepenthes. You have Nepenthes lowii, Nepenthes macrophylla, and Nepenthes raja. And these three species obtain some or all of their nutrients from tree shrew excrement. <laughs> <laughs> Similar to how uh, a flower would attract uh, pollinators with nectar. These Nepenthes pitchers, like Saracenia and Cephalotus pitchers, have extra floral nectaries between the ridges or teeth of their peristome or pitcher rim, if you can picture that. In some cases, like with Nepenthes reflesiana in Southeast Asia, for example, these nectaries are for intermittent capture of worker ants. The ant colony and uh, Nepenthes reflesiana have a resource-resource mutualism. You can kind of view it as the cost of doing business for a reliable year-round source of sugar for the non-captured workers that can return home with the nectar. Okay. But these three giant mountain pitchers are not like Nepenthes reflesiana. Visiting shrews consume the nectar secreted on the lid and defecate right into the pitchers. <laughs> it's arranged yeah. exactly right. Yeah, so <laughs> these are toilet pitchers. So. Yeah. Researchers have been curious about the relationship between Nepenthes and vertebrates since St. John found Nepenthes raja containing the remains of a drowned rat back in 1962. So this is actually pretty recent. That's only about 60 years ago, right? So over the last 25 years, occasional capture of geckos, skinks, mice... They fell in the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can just see them. No! (laughs) No! 
<laughs> well, so so gecko skinks and mice have been observed in multiple species of nepenthes, but not with any significant frequency. And there hasn't been sufficient evidence to suggest that any species evolved to target vertebrates. Didn't didn't you mention at some point that there was some Saracenia purpurea up in Canada or something that were catching lizards or something? I, I... Yeah, that was a pretty freak thing. I not, remember that. Not lizards. It was some salamanders. Other... Yes, salamanders. Yeah. But um, I have not researched that specifically. Okay. So as far as I know, there have been no pictures that target vertebrates. Right. Yeah. And I don't think the, that reference said it was targeting. They just found some salamanders in there. I see. And said, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, that's that's <laughs> that, That's in the abstract. <laughs> yeah. That's word for word from the abstract. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of want to focus on this for, for just a, a really brief moment. So a 2016 study tracking vertebrate visitors to Nepenthes grassless and Nepenthes rafflesiana included four species of sunbird and a lesser tree shrew. And it, this study showed that they simply fed at the extrafloral nectaries and left without benefiting the plants at all. So really, <laughs> these vertebrates were kleptoparasites. <laughs> they were just kind of stealing you know, resources from the pitcher and kind of getting out of there. But it is unknown how important the nectar is to any of these species' diets that, that I gotcha. mentioned. Okay. Um, but these observations open the door for the possibility of a more complex relationship evolving between vertebrates and nepenthes. So this kind of shows you one way the relationship could go, where it's not a mutualism, it's more of a parasitism, where okay. they're just stealing from the pitchers. So nepenthes loei was the first pitcher where a resource exchange mutualism was discovered between a pitcher and a vertebrate. This species produces highly modified pitchers that bear a remarkable resemblance to a toilet bowl. <laughs> so a 2009 study demonstrated that these pitchers are visited by mountain tree shrews, and these shrews have to straddle the pitcher rim in order to position themselves to feed on the exudates that are produced by the glands on the underside of the pitcher lid. And exudates so, is the nectar. Yeah, yeah, essentially. It's nectar and some other stuff. That and I produce. read that these, these pitchers, mm -hmm. they can hold up to a half gallon of water. So these are well, big. Oh, yeah. These are yeah. the giant pitchered mountain yeah. nepenthes. Yeah. yeah, these are massive. Two liters for our uh, metric listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, imagine a shrew standing on your toilet seat, <laughs> licking the tank on the back of the toilet. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like. Totally. But, um, but in the case of the Nepenthes and the shrew, the pitcher isn't much bigger than the shrew. Right. They're about the same size. It's size to the shrew. Yeah. If you haven't seen the YouTube series True Facts, have you seen that? Mm. It's all natural history-based stuff. Okay. Like played for comedy. Okay. There is a great one on this mutualism. Really? we got to put this in the episode notes. Okay. Yeah. It's for sure. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll definitely do that. Um, so the interesting thing with these shrews and, and why this mutualism kind of works out is that the tree shrews mark the location of a valuable resource with its own feces. So they usually take a dump while they're eating, and it's deposited right into the pitcher. Um, and they're not, they're not feeding intentionally the pitcher. They're just marking this good spot for nectar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're just kind of like lapping up the, the, the nectar from oh, under yeah. the lid. I got to remember this spot. Yeah. <laughs> and their bottom is positioned right over the opening of the pitcher. Yeah. So, so it's just a perfect place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I will say that these inputs, uh, these fecal inputs, <laughs> account for 57 to 100% of the foliar nitrogen 
within Nepenthes Loei. Uh, and it's also worth mentioning that larger aerial pitchers are inefficient at capturing invertebrates, but the younger terrestrial pitchers still function as an invertebrate trap. So when they're young and they're still on the ground before the plant has really grown up a bit. When I say aerial pitchers, I just mean a pitcher that's not on the ground. Sure. Yeah, it's just kind of like hovering in the air from the leaf. So the other two giant pitchered mountain species, Nepenthes raja and Nepenthes microphylla, have a similar relationship with the mountain tree shrews, except they retain the ability to trap arthropods at all stages of growth and development. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought they were all poop eaters. Yeah, strictly I mean, they're poop all poop eaters. eaters no, but... <laughs> I thought they were all strictly poop eaters. Yeah. So um, in the addition to the mountain tree shrew, Nepenthes raja also engages in an additional resource exchange mutualism with the largely nocturnal summit rat. And Nepenthes microphylla pitchers are additionally visited by a Borneo endemic passerine bird species, the mountain black eye. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. No, it's not really a very descriptive bird, and they're, it, it's a whole family of birds that I don't think we even have in North America. So The black eye. Yeah, they're called oh. a black eye. Sounded like you said the black eye. <laughs> the black eye. The mountain black eye. Um, <laughs> no. And, and, and these birds also defecate in the pitchers. It's possible that low levels of arthropod diversity and abundance associated with highlands, because remember, these are mountain pitchers. You know, typically on mountains, you have a lower arthropod diversity and a lower abundance. And we're thinking that maybe these factors led to these mountain Nepenthes species forming relationship with mammals instead of arthropods. Oh, uh, pickings were slim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can't say the same thing for this final Nepenthes species. <laughs> so Nepenthes hemsleana from the lowlands of northwestern Borneo engage in a mutualism with Hardwick's woolly bat. <laughs> this Whoa. species of pitcher are used for daytime roosts for this bat species. They nest it? They roost in the pitcher? They roost inside the pitcher. Whoa. Yeah, and while they're roosting, they deposit a large amount of feces <laughs> into the pitcher. I bet. Yeah, so I mentioned Nepenthes reflegiana earlier. This is not one of the poop-eating Nepenthes. And I kind of mentioned that it had this uh, mutualism with ant colonies providing uh, year-round nectar in exchange for occasional worker ant sacrifices. <laughs> and Nepenthes hemsleana is a close relative of Nepenthes reflegiana, but they have clearly evolved with different selective pressures since their evolutionary line split. So Nepenthes reflegiana has rigid, leathery, funnel-shaped aerial pitchers that emit a strong fragrance, kind of think reflegia, right? Reflegiana. Oh. And they also have high contrast ultraviolet patterns on the pitcher. Nepenthes hemsleana, on the other hand, have pitchers that are papery, flexible, and funnel-shaped only in the lower half. And the upper half is cylindrical with a well-developed waxy zone and do not emit any type of discernible fragrance or possess high contrast ultraviolet patterns. This pitcher also has a low water level, doesn't produce much nectar, and doesn't trap many invertebrates. So these two closely related species are clearly playing different games. Nepenthes reflesiana is clearly attracting and trapping insects, while Nepenthes hemsleana has something completely different and more rare going on in the form of housing bats and hoping they poop the bed. <laughs> so, so and they I, usually do. Yeah. So I want to end my talk about Nepenthes and mammals on this point. A 2016 study found that the Nepenthes Raja mountain tree shrew interaction broke down during a two-month period of dry weather. 
the pitchers died or failed to produce nectar, and rates of tree shoe visitation and scat deposition fell substantially. It seems that even subtle shifts in rainfall patterns have the potential to disrupt these relationships, indicating that over evolutionary time, they could be highly ephemeral. So some Nepenthes pitcher plants do eat animal poop, but how strong that relationship is, is sometimes hard to say. We just might be super fortunate to be living in a time where we get to witness this phenomenon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, especially with things like climate change right that do change uh so maybe in 100 or 200 years those poor bastards won't get to see this who knows they'll just get to read about it (laughs) and then there'll be something else evolving you know yeah other relationships that's true but evolution is slow so yeah now i said that this was the last thing i was going to talk about in terms of nepenthes and mammals yeah but i wanted to bring up one final poop eating story about nepenthes So I want to finish up by talking about one final amazing Nepenthes pitcher that has not lost its carnivorous syndrome, but that hasn't stopped it from eating poop. (laughs) (laughs) Nepenthes bicalcarata is an amazing pitcher plant that can be found in Southeast Asia and specifically Borneo. It's also called the fanged pitcher plant because it has a pair of sharp, fang-like structures that hang over the pitcher mouth. Cool. Yeah, these fang-like structures are actually derived from the back of the peristome. And the peristome is the the pitcher lid, but it kind of curves up uh, around the back and upwards towards the pitcher lid. And these fangs kind of hang down right where the lip and lid meet. And it really does look like snake's fangs. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so aside from looking really cool, these fangs have some of the largest extrafloral nectaries currently described. Uh, another amazing aspect of the species is that it's the only Nepenthes that has domatia. Do you know what domatia is? No idea. So these are hollow spaces within a plant that house ant colonies. Wow. Yeah. Cool. And for the fanged pitcher plant, the domatia is located in the pitcher tendril. Yeah. Um, So you can imagine this tendril kind of goes in like a little bit of a loop and then ends in a pitcher. Within the loop, it's almost fattened a little bit. I was going to say, yeah. And and there's like a hole in it that you'll find all stages of ants in. Adult ants, developing ant larvae. You know, it's it's amazing. There's a beautiful picture online of of one of these being cut in half. And you see kind of like all the ants in the chambers (laughs) in it. It's beautiful. So uh, there is a Borneo endemic ant species called Colobopsis. Schmitzi, commonly known as the diving ant, swimming ant, or pitcher plant ant that obligately nests within these domatia. The relationship between the ant colony and the pitcher plant is, is more complex than a pitcher plant like Nepenthes reflesiana that I've mentioned a few times now. Nepenthes bicalcarata offers the plants its hollow tendrils to nest in, as well as giant extrafloral nectaries in the fangs that provide a reliable source of carbohydrates for the colony and in return the (laughs) ant colony regulates nutrient inputs and losses for the pitcher simply put optimum nutrient uptake by the pitcher relies on a particular ion composition of the pitcher fluid you know it's coming excessive nutrient loading in the form of excessive or oversized prey can disrupt this ionic balance and result in the pitcher putrefying (laughs) you may (laughs) you may have guessed from the common name of these ants that they can swim in the pitcher and remove excessive or large prey. Occasionally, 
aquatic dipterin larvae that live in the pitcher fluid, feed on captured prey, and escape with these nutrients when they emerge as adults and leave the pitcher. Right? So this would be a problem. This is nutrients yeah. that's getting away from the pitcher. The swimming ants will prey on the dipterin larvae, and instead of those nutrients flying away, the ants poop those nutrients into the pitcher for absorption by the plant. Wow. Yeah. And uh, That's so, beautifully complicated. I mean, and I always like to sum up each of these groups with a sentence. <laughs> Nepenthes bicalcarata eats its mutualist ants' poop, <laughs> which is incredible. <laughs> so recent, wow. recent studies have shown that this Nepenthes species experiences a significant reduction in growth without this ant mutualism. With the ants present, there is a 200% increase in the foliar nitrogen content and using nitrogen 15 tracing, it was estimated that 42% of the plant's nitrogen was derived from the ant's waste material. Wow. So this is a lot. Ju- yeah, this isn't just something that like, oh, it's just the poop is like a little thing that goes on. This is actually a major source of their nutrients. And uh, it's also been shown that these ants keep the peristome clean uh, of fungi and other surface contaminants in order for the plant to be able to wet this surface and keep it slippery for prey capture. Uh, and finally, the ants protect the young pitcher buds from being eaten by weevils, and this ensures the production of additional domatia and trapping organs for the host plant. The ants are so great. I know. So, <laughs> so the ants aren't bringing extra nutrients for the pitcher. They're only helping it absorb nutrients at max capacity. Because <laughs> there's too little nutrients, they won't grow very much. If there's too much nutrients, the pitchers will putrefy right. and die. So, wow. I don't know. That's all I have. So surely, you know, this is a relatively new phenomenon that we discovered, and there's still plenty more on this topic in the near future. In fact, some researchers would like to see the fecal trap included as the sixth main carnivorous trap type. That would give us adhesive, pitfall, snap, eel, bladder, and fecal traps. (laughs) And what a world that would be. (laughs) So it's likely that future research will look into the tissue of carnivorous plants gaining nutrients through feces and urine. And and we do need further insights into the anatomy, physiology, and evolution of traps and glands that facilitate this alternative nutrient pathway. It's so cool that these, there's so few of these, these groups of plants, but they have such crazy relationships going on. It's, it's nuts. I can't wait to find out what else they're going to discover in the next 10, 20 years. Wow. <laughs> I know. It's, it's mind-blowing. That's awesome. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that I told you today, most of it is very up-to-date. I think the biggest resource I used was from 2018. So um, anything that happened in the last two years, probably that Saracenia purpurea thing, eating salamanders, is something that, that they probably wouldn't have covered. But I'm definitely interested to see what, what's kind of come out yeah. recently and what's, what's still yet to come out. All right, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Ben C. and Andrew. Thanks for signing up, guys. Yeah, so we're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we like to give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, the Hebranks, Alyssa, Sean, Rich, Jessica, Rachel, Orange Julian, Daniel, Diane, Ken, Lauren, Jane, Rachel and Leah, Indigo, Doodle Dude, 82, <laughs> Elizabeth, Renz, Jean, Callie, Bob, Kazzy's, Jeff, Goose, Bruce, Esther, John, Pollywog, we named the dog Indy, and Rob. Thank you so much, everyone. Yes, thank list, you guys so much. The list keeps getting longer. Yeah. <laughs> 
And folks, if you want to support the podcast, but you can't afford to financially support it the way Steve does, <laughs> the best thing you can do is give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. We want to give a special thanks to our latest reviewers, Steve. Ariel Cara, Sam Burn 13, Michael Thompson 11, Sloth Travel Club. <laughs> Love that one. <laughs> Betsy 2727, and Twiggy Titan. I think it's Twiggy Tishan. Oh, because Titan would be T-I-T-A-N. Right. Yeah. Twiggy <laughs> Tishan, yep. I guess. Yeah. And I wa- really want to thank the people, the, the those reviewers. Some people wrote some really kind and thoughtful remarks about how much the podcast has meant to them. So just know that we do read those folks, and they do mean a lot to us. So thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, leaving a review, leaving us a, a five-star rating that really helps get the podcast out to a wider audience. And, Steve, I don't know if you noticed, but mm-hmm. we do have some two-star, one-star, three-star reviews. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm not going to discourage people from necessarily doing that. But if there is something you don't like about the show, we really would appreciate it if you gave us some constructive criticism. Because maybe yeah. it's something that we can work on and make better. Maybe it's something we're not even aware of that we'd like to work on. Because we do want to make the show as good as possible. Right. And as we said before, please go check out gumleafusa.com, and we'll have links in the episode notes and on our website. And if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And be sure to visit us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and our website. That's right. And parents, and everyone else without kids, don't forget, get outside, flip over rocks, Look under logs, get yourself muddy and dirty, and have a great time outside. Yeah, see you next month, guys. See you next month, folks. Nepenthes hemsleyana. Oh, my God, am I saying that weird? (laughs) The thing is, these plants don't really have common names. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just realized that we're recording this episode pre-election but it will be released post-election. Oh, so we'll know not only who the president is, but we'll know if our country has devolved into civil war. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully we'll be here next month.